Thanks for tuning in to Best Show Ever, a podcast presented by the Englert Theater. On today's episode, we'll hear from author, filmmaker, professor, and performance artist extraordinaire, Kembrew McLeod. Then we'll talk to Sarah Nelson, the new executive director for Community Crisis Services and Food Bank, about her career, upcoming community happenings, and of course, her best show ever. But first, here's a word from one of the producers of this podcast. Hey, Best Show Ever listeners, it's Savannah, one of the producers of this show. The Englert has launched a second podcast, the Writers of Color Reading Series. It features writers from all over the state of Iowa, reading their work and discussing their creative endeavors with the host, Iowa City's very own Chewy Renteria. You can find it wherever you listen to Best Show Ever. New episodes air every Monday. Enjoy! Among many, many things, Kembrew McLeod is a professor of communication studies at the University of Iowa. He's written and produced several books and documentaries that focus on popular music, independent media, and copyright law. And he's also well known for being proficient in the art of pranking, for which he's claimed national notoriety. Kembrew, it's an honor to uh, meet you and be chatting with you today. As I mentioned, I'm a bit of a fan now after researching you so super glad to have you here oh thanks for having me i i love to support the englert sweet um so i'll admit i was a little bit overwhelmed uh preparing for this interview because there are just so many directions we could go you're in academia documentaries music copyright studies lots of interesting things you're doing but because we only have so much time I'd love to sort of hone in on your affinity for pranking, pranking as an art form, comedy, and surprise as a communication Mm. technique. That sounds great. I love focus. So maybe we should uh, start off with a recent example. You went viral on TikTok not too long ago with the uh, a dance challenge directed at Bruce Harold. Yeah, but can you just can you speak on the inspo? Um, you know what it was like to go viral on this new platform. Well, okay, yeah. What happened was I was teaching my class last fall semester, the first semester of the pandemic, and I just kind of felt like my students needed a little. Well, humor, uh, something unexpected, just something to jolt them out of their day-to-day pandemic routines. And so every uh, class lecture, I always videotaped an intro, uh, which is just me sort of giving an overview. But very quickly, I decided it needs to have kind of an interesting, funny intro. And so I was just doing, you know, one time I I had fake blood running down from my nose and (laughs) was out of breath and said, oh, I just got out of a mosh pit and because it was uh, punk, uh it was the week we were talking about punk rock and so i had like blood coming down my nose but i was just delivering it like in a with this in a really straightforward manner and i thought that was funny and my students did also but um one of those days one of the weeks i i decided to start my intro actually just in the middle of me dancing and um i didn't even 
think it through, really. I just thought, okay, just start the class video with a dance. And then um, by the time I actually like got to the microphone and started like talking on camera, I was totally out of breath because I had, I had actually done two takes because I was not happy with the first one, uh, happy with my <laughs> dancing. So it just wasn't quite up to par. And um, anyway, I didn't think anything of it. And then a, a few days later, one of my undergrads in the class, it's a class of 300, said, oh, I just wanted you to know I, I like use my phone camera to uh, video your dance and I posted a TikTok and it's starting to take off. And then a few hours later, she said, oh my God, it's viral. And I looked and, you know, within like that day, within 24 hours, it gotten a million views and I like got, had ultimately got like 3 million views and like 30,000 comments. And my son, my uh, nine-year-old son at the time, Alistair, I could tell he was really proud because he was scrolling through these like hilarious comments about, well, it's just really goofy dancing. I wasn't taking myself seriously. And then the last bit of the video, the the president of the University of Iowa, Bruce Harold, who recently stepped down, I, I had the idea at the very last minute to, well, I needed a reason why I was dancing. So when I got to the microphone and got on camera and I was out of breath, which made it even funnier, which is why I kept that take, um, I because uh, I wanted it to all be in one take, I was like, oh, I should challenge the president to a dance off. And so that's what I did. And just didn't think anything of it. Next thing I knew, yeah, it's uh, viral. So that's that's that story. Do you ever look at your Rate My Professor reviews online? No, I actually never have, kind of intentionally. I mean, partially because I'm afraid of some mean-spirited things that might be said, but also both ends. Like, I don't want to get a big head and I don't want to um, feel shame about horrible things that are said about me. Why? Did, did you look at Rate My Professor? What, what was <laughs> I, said? I took a gander. And the results are were pretty stunning. Prof is an old punk. And that's all in capitals. Dancing and screaming in the class. The test is just like the lyrics of punk. Direct and simple. Okay, now here's this one's my favorite from just the few that I browsed. Kembrew is top three coolest professors I've ever had. He is extremely knowledgeable as well as hilarious. He sports velvet cheetah chucks and a shirt that reads Bad Mofo, amongst other sweet duds. Oh, yeah, I, I like that shirt. <laughs> what maybe have been uh, some of the pranks, bits, performances that you've been most proud of or have felt have been most impactful? I mean, one of my favorite performances, conceptual art pieces, in high school, I was about to graduate from... Well, actually, I failed my senior year of high school, so I had to repeat my senior year because I didn't have enough credits because I skipped school too much because I just didn't care about school. Uh, but I eventually graduated, and when I was about to graduate, I decided to sell my soul uh, and be the first person to mass produce it in a, a silk screens. A cardboard box. It came in a, uh, the size and shape of a cereal box. And that was my first limited edition soul, Kim Bruce soul. Um, <laughs> I actually funded my, I funded my senior prom um, by selling uh, 50 boxes for $4.95 each. Um, and I sold them all. Wow. And um, later on, a, a few years later, I decided to market it and merchandise it in a smaller glass container. Um, and so I had a new and improved sole and I had extra stock left over by the end of the nineties around the time when <laughs> eBay was coming into, um, into being. 
And actually, it was my old friend, Kenan, who who I co-directed Harold and Maude with. He was working in PR in New York City at the time. And so he basically sprinkled his magic fairy dust and accessed the kind of they called them blast faxes back then. It was, you know, basically before email and you just blasted into newsrooms, faxes, press releases. And this was a press release about uh, this person, Kimbrew, who is um, selling a soul on eBay. And so that, <laughs> be also, that became like a big global news story. And that allowed me to sort of take on the persona of like, it was a, basically a parody of a greedy dot com capitalists. And I was like, yeah, so what if I don't have a soul, but I have a new car. I just bought a new car and I'm, I'm doing great, man. And I would be on like drive time radio, uh, having like theological arguments with like callers who are stuck in traffic jams or whatever. And I would argue that, no, my soul's a renewable resource, man. I can just, uh, I can just uh, keep <laughs> selling it and selling it, and selling it. That's what Jesus would want. Jesus was a capitalist. And so that was one performance. Another thing that I did I guess the first thing I became known for as an academic was looking at the cultural impact of copyright law. Um, for instance, how copyright infringement lawsuits basically changed the course of hip hop by the late 80s, early 90s, when there was this wave of lawsuits that no longer allowed groups like Public Enemy to make these really innovative, dense sonic collages from 20, 30 different sound sources because it was legally uh, financially untenable to do so. And so I, I studied that. That's what my dissertation was about. And family and friends outside of academia would ask, oh, what's your dissertation on? And I would be like, sort of using my grad school training, I'm interested in the, the intersections of intellectual property law, issues of power, and blah, 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 and their eyes would glaze over. But then I would tell them, oh, yeah, and I also uh, trademarked the phrase freedom of expression. Um, and I did. Uh, I, I wanted to see, basically to test my thesis, like the argument in my dis dissertation, which was about the negative impacts of the privatization of culture, where people can, mm. or corporations can gobble up little words and phrases and icons. And so as a test to see if the US government would let someone privately own freedom of expression, I filed for a trademark of freedom of expression in 1998 and received it. Then after that, actually one of the very first things that I did when I came to the University of Iowa, I was teaching a, a class on copyright and one of my students brought in an ad from uh, that was in the Daily Iowan uh, from AT&T, and it had in big letters, freedom of expression. That was the tagline of their fourth quarter ad campaign. And my students said, oh, you should sue them. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's funny. I was like, oh, yeah, that would be kind of funny. And I didn't actually sue them. It's too expensive to okay. file a lawsuit. But what I did do was I spent $100 on hiring a lawyer who wrote a cease and desist letter, which was just, that was all I needed to get the publicity. So I had a friend put me in touch with a reporter from the New York Times because I knew if the Times broke the story, it would trickle down to all the wire services. And that's when I sent out the press release. And that also became like an international news story. And basically it was using going back to this idea of unexpected surprises, like no one is expecting someone to own freedom of expression. And so it became a kind of orally transmitted meme. Oh, did you hear about the guy who trademarked freedom of expression? That also gave me the opportunity to talk to news reporters and explain the rationale behind why I did it. It wasn't just like a stupid stunt. It was a commentary on the way that our culture mm -hmm. has been privatized through various means. And so I guess those are two among many <laughs> of things that I've done over the years. 
Yeah, I do think it's notable that a lot of, you know, the pranks, as funny as they may be, you know, there's always an underlying message that's pretty serious. We're always getting a more bigger picture idea coming out of it, which is, yeah, it truly is an art form in that way. Okay, so my last question, although I could ask you about a thousand things, I feel like this kind of art form, and I may just be out of touch, you know, maybe with the performance art scene or something, I don't know. But I feel like I don't see a lot of it around the area in Iowa, maybe even in the Midwest. Am I out of touch or do you feel like maybe you wish there was more? Yeah, I, 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 I'd agree with you. I mean, I, I don't really see a ton of it. But you know what? I, I didn't really see a ton of it in Amherst, Massachusetts and Northampton, Massachusetts, where I was living before and I was doing the same thing. So, I mean, I, it's a it's a little niche world. Um, and it's also, it, it seems easy, especially once you see a story take off and become viral. But for every kind of crazy prank that I've done that has gotten national or international news coverage, there are probably two or three crazy ideas that never went anywhere that might have gotten like 40 views or something if I posted on YouTube. Um, and that's fine too. It's I, What I like about it is just kind of the luck of the draw. And even when going back to the TikTok, uh, the conversation about the TikTok video that we started out talking about, I certainly wasn't thinking, oh, this is going to get so many views or, and I never would have thought I would get like 3 million views in like two days or whatever. Um, and I always just learn from that process. And so sure, I, I'd love it if more people... Uh, were inspired to do crazy stuff like I do, but um, it's also kind of hard to do, to pull off. So maybe that's why you don't see a, a ton of it. Mm -hmm. but I'd certainly love to see more crazy, fun stuff on Iowa City streets. And um, and I do occasionally. You see these little one-off um, moments that make you smile. But uh, yeah, I, I would love to see more of that around town. Well, here's here's to hoping, you know, Maybe people will be inspired, um, maybe after listening to this podcast. I'm certainly feeling inspired, and I want to thank you again for taking some time out of your day to chat and for um, just injecting your art and funness and um, ideas into our community. So thank you again. Yeah, I, I came here in the year 2000. Um, and uh, honestly, I didn't think I would stay. I'm, I'm from I grew up on the beach in Virginia Beach and never saw myself um, sticking around. But uh, even if I don't see that much uh, crazy wild stuff that we've been talking about on Iowa City streets, there's something about Iowa City just in terms of like the it being small enough and the kind of synergy of different kinds of artists working in different mediums, being able to connect with each other. That's really what has made me stay in Iowa City. And, and that's what I, I had always really appreciated about the kinds of work that the Inkler does. So thanks for having me on. Aww, thank you. Yeah, that's the magic. Mm -hmm. We'll be right back in conversation with Sarah Nelson, Executive Director of Community. But first, here's a word from the Inkler's Development Director, Katie Roach. Did you know that you could be promoting your business, organization, or event to Best Show Ever podcast listeners by placing an ad here on the show? Sponsoring Best Show Ever or other Inglert programming ties your brand to a local legacy, the Inglert Theater, and your support of the Inglert now means more than ever before. 
In 2020, we experienced significant revenue shortfall brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic. Through this financially tumultuous time, we're producing new digital productions, including this podcast, our Stages concert series, and Witching Hour Festival, all to inspire positive community growth through the arts. Packages range from $100 on up. Our investment in the arts community is only possible with support from sponsors like you, and art supporters are known for supporting those that support the arts. Visit englert.org sponsorship for all of the information about how to advertise. I mean, you're listening right now. Place your ad here, englert.org sponsorship. Sarah Nelson is former COO at Foundation to Crisis Services in Cedar Rapids and is currently the executive director at Community Crisis Services and Food Bank. Aside from an over 20-year career in nonprofit and government organizations, Sarah is also known for her mental health advocacy and even has an affinity for fused glass art. Sarah, thank you so much for being here today to talk all about community. We appreciate you. I am happy to be here. Sweet. So first question, would you be able to just walk us briefly through community's history? Because as I was researching for this interview, I was surprised to learn many things, especially that community was, the crisis center was founded by two freshmen at the University of Iowa, which I'm like, wow, that is very powerful. And it's two women, right? I believe so, yes. In uh, 1969, there were two uh, freshmen on the University of Iowa campus that returned to their dorm room and found that their roommate had barricaded the door and attempted suicide. And they were trying to find uh, resources and support for this roommate and deal with uh, the trauma they experienced as a result of this and and found that there was just nothing out there in the community to help them. And so born from that experience was a campaign around advocacy on behalf of the University of Iowa students to support those experiencing crisis. So they started just knocking on doors and by 1970 had really started to get this off the ground and establish what would become the crisis center of Johnson County, which is now Community Crisis Services and Food Bank. That story is just so powerful because it really is, you know, young people seeing a need in their community and then going out and creating a resource, which is very inspiring. And then can you briefly describe all of what community does? Our crisis intervention program um, and crisis response services is a huge portion of the work that we do. So we are a core center for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, and we do uh, phone crisis calls, chat, and text 24-7. We also have mobile crisis teams that operate 24-7, and any community member of any age of any income level can access that for free. Mobile crisis response is a really incredible service because we go to wherever you are in the community and wherever you feel most comfortable to provide the support that you need. It's also important for me that 
community members know that there's no income guidelines on this. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is. You know, accessing crisis services when you need it is difficult regardless of of your socioeconomic status. And so mobile crisis exists for all members of our community, youth, young adults, adults, seniors, It's just a really fantastic service that can then provide that immediate de-escalation as well as provide resources to what can then help an individual or a family on an ongoing basis. Hmm. Uh, The other piece of that that I think is really important is that we don't define what crisis is. You know, there's no judgment around it. So you're not going to call and ask to be supported on the crisis line through chat or text or call and ask for a mobile crisis and have anybody tell you, well, that doesn't sound like a crisis. You know, if you are experiencing emotional distress and need support, that is defined uh, by you and your family. It's not something that's defined by us. Hmm. I love that about community that just right off the top, like a major underlying philosophy is that the the person, the client, they determined the way that they can best be helped. I just can't imagine what it's like to, to work so closely with something that can be so heavy and to have your own personal trauma with it. Is that difficult for you or is it just ultimately like a total motivator? Or is it somewhere in between? I think it's somewhere in between. I think on most days, it's a total motivator. It's just the fabric of who I am at this point. And it's something that I'm so deeply passionate about. You know, when I started this line of work, it wouldn't have been appropriate for me in an interview to discuss the fact that my father had schizophrenia because that would be taboo and I would be oversharing or crossing boundaries, you know, which goes to speak to how far we've come and how far I think we need to continue to push ourselves to have these conversations until it is no longer stigmatized or taboo. Seeing that progress over the course of my career um, just motivates me to continue to to push on that and to increase the quality of lives for people experiencing crisis so that people start to talk about it and get the help that they need just as they would if they had diabetes or cancer or any of those things. There are days where it's heavy, right? You know, there, there are days where it's, you know, it's what I do all day long and it's, um, you know, has a personal impact on me as well. But I think, you know, that's where self-care comes in and making sure that you're experiencing all the positive, beautiful people and things that there are in the world to experience. But I just, I can't imagine doing anything else. I care so deeply about it. And um, I feel like it's what I'm meant and here to do. Well, it's awesome to hear from you, someone who's been you know, working with these issues for a long time, that you are seeing the stigma being broken down. Tell us about the fundraiser coming up, the fifth annual Hunger Banquet, which is going to take place June 11th. It's not just, you know, your typical fundraiser. It's It's got a different look on things. So just describe um, what this event will be like. It does. So the Hunger Banquet is our largest fundraiser of the year. So it's very important for us to continue uh, meeting the needs of 
of those in Johnson County. And it's really designed to immerse guests in the realities of food insecurity in Johnson County and what that looks like. And so it's a, it's an experience. It's not just a, you know, a fundraising event where you sit down and chat. It's a really experiential opportunity to try to walk in the shoes of someone else and immerse guests in, in those realities. And we have an estimated 22,500 of our neighbors are currently experiencing food insecurity. Um, they know what it's like to be hungry, to be to not have access to food, to not be able to get a meal together for their kids or to go to bed with an empty stomach because they had to feed their children and didn't have enough for themselves. And those are the residents that we are here to help through our, our food bank. And so through the the annual hunger banquet, which will be virtual this year, people will be able to experience it from the comfort of their home while learning about what they can do to help fight hunger in our community and what it feels like um, to live day to day with issues of food insecurity. And so there will be virtual presentations featuring community volunteers, staff, supporters, um, clients, um, and then the just like at our in-person version, participants will be randomly assigned a financial demographic based on actual income levels in our community to determine the value of the meal they receive. And so then they will get that amount. Um, and some participants will be able to have an upscale dinner and some would only be able to purchase fast food and um those representing the 22,500 will receive no meal at all. And so it's, it's really just an experiential opportunity um, to see how that distribution looks throughout our county. Mm. I really commend y'all for taking a look at a fundraiser and deciding to do it in a different experimental, experiential way. Okay, well, let's get in to your best show ever experience. And let's start off by just walking us, give, a, give us the setting, the time, the place, and then just walk us through what the experience was like. So I was a freshman in high school at West High School. And uh, my parents were always, you know, taking me to various performances throughout Iowa City and at Hancher in particular. And uh, they had bought tickets to take me to billboards. And I was a huge, huge Prince fan, still am. <laughs> um, that has never changed. And um, I was just fascinated by what the show would be like with the Joffrey Ballet set to Prince music. And I had no idea what to expect. And so I went with my parents uh, to this event at Hancher and was just completely blown away. I would have been 13, 14 years old at the time. Um, and, you know, I had been to Les Mis and your traditional, you know, the nutcracker, your traditional mm -hmm. what you expect when you go to a performance at Hancher. And this was just <laughs> unlike anything I had ever seen. And I was moved and compelled and engaged throughout the entire performance and it just changed the way I thought about music and performance and art and um, 
you know, I've always been, anybody that knows me knows I'm not down with the status quo. And I like to push Mm -hmm. traditional ways of thinking or people that say we can't do that, or we've always done it this way. And it was like, this was a visual performative representation of that, you know, the ballet could be um, what it was for billboards set to, to Prince's music. And so it was just a really incredible transformative experience that I'll never forget. Mm, it's kind of, kind of punk rock in a way, <laughs> you know, taking something and then just deliberately making it into what people don't expect it to be. Yes. And at the time there were, you know, I had friends, parents that would not let them go to billboards because it was too provocative and inappropriate. (laughs) So like, that's how um, cutting edge it was at the time. Um, And I feel particularly blessed that my parents gave me the opportunity uh, to see it because it's not something that ever came around again. And it was incredible. And I believe it premiered in Iowa City at Hancher wow. in 93. That was the premiere event. Wow. So not, okay. Not only was it in a informative, you know, event that impacted sort of the way you approached just everything, you know, pushing the status quo in general, but also it was a historical, you kind of got to say like, I was there at that very first premiere, which is you know, it's always fun to flex. That, <laughs> tell people, I, I, you know, I was there when that happened. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> well, that's awesome. What a cool, what a cool event. A best show ever, like we've, we have not heard yet. Set to the, the tune of Prince, who we all love. So yes. thank you so much for sharing that with us. Absolutely. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you on today. Um, And on behalf of the Engler, I guess, uh, we just appreciate so much what you and everyone on your team does at Community um, makes Iowa City better for everyone. So thank you so much again. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate being here. Our song of the week is Do You Follow Me by The Half Loves, a five-piece indie rock band from Eastern Iowa. The single was released today and is available everywhere, including Bandcamp. You can support the band by purchasing some of their music, or you can head to their website and browse the store tab. Trust me when I say their merch game is out of control. They even have their own blend of coffee, which is hashtag goals. They've also got a No Touching Sessions premiere coming up, so keep an eye out for that if you'd like to get a taste for their live sound. Anyways, here's the tune, Do You Follow Me, by The Half Loves. Does it mean I've been up all night? I need an answer in 
must taste it Picture me in paradise I'll pay the price School of Music is dedicated to the development of ability in all children. They teach according to the philosophy of Shinichi Suzuki, who has proven that particular talents are not inborn and that all children can develop their abilities in music and other areas to a high level if they learn in the manner that they learned to speak their mother tongue. They offer excellence in early childhood education and music instruction for students of all ages in a caring, nurturing environment. The Prusel School believes music training is life training of equal importance to all children, regardless of economic status. 
It aims to keep tuition affordable and offers aid to those students in need of assistance who demonstrate a desire to learn. More information at Prusil, P-R-E-U-C-I-L dot org. Support for this podcast comes from Friends of the Inglert. To learn more, visit inglert.org slash friends. Ongoing support provided by the National Endowment for the Arts and the Iowa Arts Council, a division of the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs. And by the United States Regional Arts Resilience Fund. Phase One is an initiative of Arts Midwest and its peer United States Regional Arts Organizations, made possible by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation.